The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Look to the science was the call from politicians and the public alike throughout the pandemic. As if science had a single definitive view and the data one interpretation. Yet science is full of competing and sometimes contradictory views, particularly at the edges of current understanding. Increasingly, scientists see themselves as operating with models of reality, rather than trying to uncover the one single truth. Ultimate final accounts being perhaps more typical of religion than the exploratory and skeptical approach at the core of science. So should we abandon the idea that science provides absolute answers? Joining us to debate the fundamental nature of science are pioneering American physicist Lisa Randall, renowned philosopher of science Tim Maudlin, and legendary cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Junesh Taylor. Pretty big questions. Thankfully, we have three great minds here today to help guide us through this uh, conversation. So I uh, am honoured to introduce our three speakers. First of all, we have Lisa Randall, who is a theoretical physicist, an honorary fellow of the Institute of Physics, and Frank B. Baird, professor of science uh, on the physics faculty of Harvard University. She's the author of uh, Higgs Discovery, The Power of Empty Space, and Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, The Astounding Interconnectedness of the Universe. We're also joined by Donald Hoffman, who is a professor of cognitive sciences at the University of California, Irvine, where he researches perception, evolution, and consciousness. Donald's latest book, The Case Against Reality, argues that we do not perceive reality objectively and argues for a mathematical rather than spatiotemporal model of reality. Welcome, Donald. And last, and but by no means least, we are also joined by Tim Maudlin, who is a professor of philosophy at NYU and the founder and director of the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics. His research interests lie primarily in the foundations of physics, metaphysics, and logic. So a very, very warm welcome to the three of you. Um, so with that, here is my first opening question. Should scientists and politicians avoid giving the impression that there is a single definitive account? Donald, if you don't mind, could you take the hot seat? Three minutes, it's all yours. In brief, I would say, yes, that they should avoid giving that impression that 
I think people need to be taken uh, seriously and the science needs to be taken seriously that, that scientists, science itself um, is a process of human inquiry. It's the results of science are the best ideas that we have so far. So they're the ones that we need to take seriously. Uh, and science won't always get it right, but we don't have any better ideas than what science has right now. And science has the best empirical as well as theoretical ideas. And so scientists will disagree. Uh, and we should, you know, as a matter of public policy, I think you know, the governments need to take the best consensus that scientists have at, at, at any given time and run with that consensus, because in some sense that represents the best ideas that, that humanity has so far, the, the most well-tested and thought out ideas. But we should all, always let people know that even though this, these are the best ideas that science has right now, um, that does not mean that this is the final word. This just, just means that, if, for example, if you want to send a rocket ship to Mars, you should use the best science that we have right now. It doesn't mean that we're not going to change that science and get something even better uh, in, in a decade or two. But right now, you would be foolish not to use the best science we have right now if you're going to go to Mars. And if you're going to try to deal with a, a nasty virus, sure, five years, 10 years down the line, we'll find out that there were some better techniques, that there was something better that we could have done. But that's five or 10 years down the line from now. We should use the best that we've got right now and let people understand that science is, is not like a religion. We're not, it's not a dictate from on high. This is not a gospel. This is people doing the best they can with experiments and theory to understand our world. And uh, of course, it's going to evolve. And, and of course, we will get different ideas as, as we go along. So science is to its glory open-ended um, and that can be frustrating to the public. They would like to have the final word from science and, and there will never be the final word. We will always be in the process of, of great discoveries. So, so I would say yes, but with, with caveats. Okay, well, straight over to you, Tim, in that case. Any, any additional thoughts? What do you make of this? Well, I, I think there's a, a little danger in the, sometimes the way things are phrased. They're trying to get at the right idea, but can give you the wrong idea. So if you ask, what about the phrase, follow the science? I, I don't think that's a particularly helpful way to frame it. What you should be saying is attend to the evidence. Um, what makes science different than other disciplines is this attention to evidence and grounds for uh, putting something forward. In the case of mathematics, those grounds can be definitive in the sense of demonstrative proofs. In empirical science, there's lots of different kinds of evidence. They have different strengths. And the wise person accommodates their strength of their belief to the strength of the evidence. Now, does science give us definitive answers? Well, sometimes the evidence is pretty darn definitive. Um, it was once a real debate what the moon was made of, whether it was made of the same kind of stuff that the earth was. That's something Aristotle worried about. And people debated it for a while. Now, once you go to the moon and bring back moon rocks, that's kind of over, right? I mean, it would be silly to say we didn't figure out um, that the moon actually is made of the same kind of material as the earth. So evidence can, can at certain times become so overwhelming that it would just be irrational not to believe, you know, that water is H2O, but then there are all kinds of intermediate grades. And so you need to think about where the evidence is coming from, how it was developed, what the alternative theories are, and how the evidence bears on it. 
which is somewhat complicated and you know it can't be reduced to a simple slogan but that's where your focus ought to be interesting okay tend to the tend to the evidence i like that perhaps i'll i'll flag it up here in the uk it's a better slogan um Lisa, should scientists and politicians avoid giving the impression that there is a single definitive account? Your thoughts? Uh, there's so many things to say on this topic. Um, so I'm going to start by just mentioning that um, we're, if we talk about policy, it, it is interesting to me that science is held to such a different standard. I mean, if we just talk about evidence. I mean, you know, I, I, my country, unfortunately, went to war in Iraq based on completely um, constructed evidence about a nuclear program in Iraq. So, so people don't always know how to evaluate the evidence. And, and so I think scientists play a role in saying what, what evidence means. But I also think it is interesting that science is held to a much higher standard. And so in terms of this, I think what's really different about science is that all of these questions can be made a bit more systematic. And so we always just say, is this true or not? Or do should we agree on this? But basically, especially in my book, Knock on Heaven's Door, I talk about the idea of an effective theory. The idea of um, basing theories on things that we know today, knowing that fundamentally they can be different in the future. Now, what's the advantage of that is that there are predictions you can make with various degrees of probability. And all of these questions, of course, would be much easier to discuss if people were more comfortable with the idea of probability. The idea that, I mean, and in fact, Galileo, who really sort of, was one of the pioneers in saying what experimental science was about, she argued that you know, theories can be ruled out, but he understand you can never actually prove a theory. And that's not true for a, a, only of scientific theories, just any theory, you can rule things out. But what you can do is have theories that are good enough, good enough that in the lifetime of the universe, you will always make the correct predictions under the circumstances that you have. And so understanding that difference is very critical to understanding why sometimes we'll find things later on that change how we might look at a theory, but why it was still giving correct predictions. As was argued earlier, we can figure out how to send things to the moon or to Mars perhaps, but we didn't necessarily need quantum mechanics to do that. So even though the theory was an approximation in some sense, and it's important to keep in mind that approximate theories are sufficiently accurate for a lot of the things we need to know. But, but I think the point you made in the beginning that there are questions when science is being developed. We don't necessarily even have a definitive effect theory. People do have competing ideas and we're trying to understand it. And I think, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, but I think the COVID crisis was an example of that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't look to scientists for guidance and that um, sometimes policies will change as we know more. So, and I think if anything, we should really look at this as really a victory of science. The idea that a vaccine came about so quickly shows how, how powerful science can be. And the fact that we were given false information about that also shows that, that we should be careful. But clearly science is the way to understand the world at many levels. And we have to understand its limitations, but also its power. Uh, I feel like there's a lot in what all of you have said. So um, the first theme is meant to almost go back uh, to the very beginning of this thing, which is to sort of ask you or push you all a little bit more to answer the question. But like, can science actually provide absolute answers? And um, I suspect that the word absolute there might be the, the heart of this question. Um, I don't know 
if any of you immediately, none of you seems to be leaping at the screen. Uh, Go on, well, I, can, I can certainly answer that because that completely relates to what I was just saying. So let me just go into a little bit more into what I mean by effective. An effective theory is based on the idea that at any given time, we've measured certain things in a certain regime of parameters, maybe a certain distance regime, a certain energy regime, a certain um, size regime. And we can make predictions, we can make successful predictions, we can have theories about that regime of parameters. Now, mind you, that regime of parameters becomes bigger and bigger as we expand our measurements, as we look at more things. But we have this very, and, and those answers are correct, up to the accuracy with which we've measured things. So it could be that either by measuring things more accurately or by moving to a different regime, we can find that our predictions were not absolute, as you put it. They're not precise, but they were precise enough for everything we had to do precise enough to send a man to the moon, but maybe it could get more precise and that would be irrelevant to anything we see today, which is why we're not, we haven't measured that yet. So I think it's very comforting and very comfortable and helps get around a lot of these silly debates to admit that that's the way all knowledge works. We base it on what we've seen, what we've observed. We put it together into theories. We can make predictions. Science is unique in that we can usually say the accuracy with which we trust the predictions and then allow things to evolve beyond that. So to say there's an absolute is unnecessary in all of this. We don't even have to ask that question. We, all we have to do is ask the question, is it, is it good enough for what we're trying to do in whatever we're trying to predict, whatever we're trying to build? And that's the sense in which science is brilliantly successful. And it's also brilliantly successful in telling us when we don't have absolute things. I mean, what we're doing in particle physics is we're looking for deviations from this, what we call the standard model. That's what tells us how to go beyond. It doesn't mean the standard model is wrong. It tells us that there could be a richer structure that underlies it. And that's the way science can evolve. Can I just say here, I, I think this term absolute is, is again, not being very helpful. Do scientists come up sometimes with true, correct answers to certain questions? Yes, they do. Um, what's supposed to be absolute is, is, is sometimes the evidence that those answers are correct it leaves them beyond any what we would call any reasonable doubt. Um, DNA has a double helix structure. That's a really important discovery. If you're worried about COVID, we know it's a virus, right? We got the sequence very quickly. Those are not, those are really not useful things that anyone can question. High-level theoretical physics is an entirely different matter. You're, you, you're not going to ever be sure you have that nailed down exactly right. But we sure do know a lot of stuff, and we know it beyond any No, reason. but I'm saying, let me just to be clear, even for something like a virus, yes, it's a virus, but maybe it's a virus interacting with something else. So the virus is an approximation to how we should be thinking about it. Of course, it's an extremely excellent approximation, just the way the standard model is an extremely excellent approximation. So you're right that when we're really at the edge of, of knowledge, of course, then these effective theories are breaking down in ways that we can manifest. But there's a lot of stuff in physics that's on, on as solid ground as the kind of stuff that you just mentioned. And so I don't mean to say that that doesn't exist. I'm just saying that if we do more measurements, maybe we, I mean, obviously, it acts like a virus, there's no question about it, but there are other things that we can learn about it that will enhance our knowledge of what it is and how it's interacting and how it interacts with its environment, for example. Right, I, I, COVID just is a virus. I mean, look, there are lots of, 
there are lots of issues that go into how it affects the biological mechanism. And a lot of things can come into that and environmental factors, but it just is a virus. And we know a lot about its structure and so on. I don't think it's all that helpful to spread a kind of general skepticism over everything, because then that will affect, people will say, oh, I can always question anything. At a certain point, there's some things that it's not really reasonable to question. And there are other things that it is perfectly reasonable to question. And you have to look at each individual case. That's why I think I, I don't want a bumper sticker that says science is X. I mean, then you even have the question, what counts as science? We don't think that astrology is science. We have good reasons not to think that. But you can't also just think that science is some sticker you can stick on things that suddenly makes it valid or invalid or whatever. Yeah, I think in this regard that, uh, you know, what, what scientists can do is to talk about where there is consensus. You know, for example, this COVID thing is a virus. There's, there's no serious scientist questions that. And then the scientists can then say, so that's our common ground, but here are the, here are the details where we might dis disagree, where we might disagree on the right interventions and, 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 and so forth. It, it's, it requires a little bit more attention from the public to, to understand these, these nuances. But if, if science, scientists could do this, I think it also could help with political discourse to you know, figure out where do we agree and then where, where do we disagree and, and, and why, what are the substantive issues? Um, so scientists would, would say there's no question about certain interventions for the virus and certain things, you know, there's no question about that. Then the details about specific details about masks and so forth, how effective those might be in different circumstances. There could be debate among scientists on those, on those details. And then, then the public might be told, look, we don't have the absolute answer here, but 90% of the scientists who've done this work think such and such, you know, masks in this situation, but not in that. And 10% disagree. So right now, you know, the 10% might be right, but right now we have to go with the 90%. Um, and, you know, in two years from now, we might find something different. I just, I mean, one thing that we do, though, often is we, um, we cite people. We cite 90% of the people. But what would also be very useful is that 90% of, of the time, it was found that this works. Um, rather than make it a, a question of consensus or people's opinion, and, and that is actually sometimes a problem with the way science is presented. It's presented as so-and-so says this. And really, it's something based on something. And often, when we talk to the public, people are afraid to say what the data is because they won't necessarily understand it. And, and this goes back to, to talking about providing evidence. Um, there, are, there are questions. I mean, really, um, and in terms of interventions, I don't think there was a single intervention that wasn't questioned in this country by someone. I mean, so what we really need is a better educational system. So the question is, during COVID, were politicians and scientists wrong to present their data their data and models as uncovering the truth? I, 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 I guess the question is, you'd really have to look at what people said. I think the scientists tended to be pretty clear whether the public paid attention or not. I mean, right when COVID started, for example, the question came up whether the thing aerosolizes, which made a big difference to what kind of masks might be effective against it. And, and they knew at the beginning, they didn't know. I mean, at the beginning, it's a brand new virus. You haven't seen it before. Um, you want to say, well, you ought to be really cautious, right? Use a, a very, an N95 or very effective mask. Um, maybe if it doesn't aerosolize, you don't need that. People were very careful about washing their hands and cleaning things. 
at a point when they didn't know whether the thing actually transmitted by contact. And then as time went on and you acquired more evidence, you said, well, it turns out it doesn't seem to, 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 to go by being picked up on your hands and you don't have to worry so much about that. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know that, that the scientists ever said we have the absolute truth about this. They, they would say things like, look, this is a good precaution and we need to do more studies. And as the studies come in, we will adjust our advice, which is what they've been saying all along. It's, a, it's not so comfortable for the politicians, but I don't, I don't think the scientists were too bad about that. But, yeah, I think uh, there, there are two caveats I might add, though. I think on the whole, I agree with you, and the scientists had every right to say where they were and, and to have suggestions. Um, there was incorrect advice given about masks in the beginning, and I think that was held against at least the community. I don't know if it was the scientists themselves, but there was a shortage of masks and we were told masks weren't, weren't that helpful. And I think um, the, the misinformation about masks made people trust them less. Um, I don't know where that came from. If it was the scientific community, probably not, probably the political, but I think that was a problem. And the other thing that I think is, is somewhat of a problem, I mean, I, I'm less so than some of my friends, but um, is that we don't have a very open, um, discussion of the side effects of, of the drugs, um, of the vaccines rather. And I think that, you know, we can admit that there's some people who react badly without saying it's a bad thing to do. Again, if we understand probabilities better, that would be extremely helpful. So I think that because we just dismiss it entirely, people feel neglected, especially if they take the vaccine and they have a very bad reaction. And so I think, and I, I know that's only a small number of cases, I know that's not the norm, but I think um, to some extent, we have, there's a lot of people who aren't listening and we have to try to figure out why they're not listening. It could be just because they're really just not listening and get not in the news, but it could be that there are ways in which we can attend to a little bit better that would be more inclusive. Well, I don't know. Yeah, it would, it would be nice. Uh, I mean, let me just say to the masks, I think even that's a little, I mean, early on, there was a worry that there would be a run on masks, that, right. that, that the, the really good N95s would all be bought up by anybody who could get their hands on them. And they said, the people who really need them are the people who are working in the medical people, right? In fact, I, I knew people who had them at home and went and took them to their you know, sure. neighborhood medical facilities because they really needed PPE. Now, that may that you know in in getting that message across they sort of wanted to keep the general public from trying to grab those things up because other people needed them more and maybe some people heard that wrong like oh masks don't do any good but i think if i think i think that, uh, that some people were very careful about it and and some of it was just trying to get across the message without too much subtlety please don't go and, and, and hoard all the good masks because there are people who need it a lot more than you do. Right, but the problem, the problem is there, there are selfish people out there. And so I think that to circumvent that, or, um, there was a message that masks won't really make a big difference that was sent out. And I mean, and that's, I mean, I personally don't think that that's a good thing to do if we know it's not true. But on the other hand, um, you know, if you have some sick or weak people in your house and you find out that masks do help, um, are you going, you know, you might selfishly take them and not let people in the hospital who need them even more get them. So it's, these are difficult policy questions. And I don't think it's up to the scientists to decide them. I think the scientists can just say the, the truth and then acknowledge that there's policy issues that then come into play. 
the fact that, um, you know, you're discussing how communication was done effectively, what was the message? And it kind of harks back to the, the, the first sort of theme, right? Which is there's an assumption made that the public like absolutes, right? And can only handle those. Like, do masks work? Yes or no? Because if we dress up science as being this like purveyor of absolutes, then anything that comes out of the mouth of a scientist is taken as being the absolute truth, right? Which is an issue in this context. But what I wanted to ask was, you know, we're also just talking about scientists en masse, right? Technically, we're all scientists on this panel, but we all have very different specialisms and maybe me and more as the outlier in the biology camp. But there's an interface between how scientists and which scientists end up advising which politicians where as well. So I wondered if I've, any of you actually have anything to say about the role of scientists within um, the sort of interface with politics and perhaps they have more responsibility than the academics who are doing the research or, or not. What do you think about that? Yes, I think that one thing that science does well is to understand risks under uncertainty. So in, in science, we, we have to deal with probabilistic um, outcomes, probabilistic situations, not knowing exactly what's happening, say early on with the virus, what, what, what are the parameters? But one thing that we understand is how to look at the, the payoffs, the, the problems that might happen for, for various policy outcomes, and our current assessment of the probability of these various kinds of outcomes and their risks. So if we can give people an understanding that right now with the science as it is, we know we are pretty confident about these aspects, say, of the virus. We're not confident yet about aerosols or, or other aspects of the virus. But now these are the risks. If, if there is a problem with aerosol, then the risk to the population would be such and such. In other words, we can forecast if the outcome five months down the line is such and such, then these are the risks that would be taken and we can talk about our probabilities. And, and so we can give people a, a feeling for the way science is really done. We have risks, we have probabilities, and we try to, to minimize the overall um, downside uh, to health. And so that I think would give people a, a more fair understanding of, of how science really works. Uh, very, very, you know, in, in early on in the science, there's a lot of things we may not know. We know it's a virus, but but you know, exactly how that virus works and how it would, how it could, could kill you or or maim you. We didn't find out until later that that this thing could attack your heart and 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 take out. You know, a lot of people recently has come out that that this this virus is not just in your respiratory system. People have cardiac problems with it uh, for a long time, and and so I mean we we might not have even known to ask that up front. Um, so we, we should even say what we don't know. I mean, right up front, I think most scientists might not have said this is you know, high likely that it could cause heart problems. I mean, Lisa, you mentioned this concept of the necessity for public education already, right, in, in your earlier comments. So do you think that it's the, it's the onus of the education system to ensure a public that understands probability more? Is it a failing of the education system or...? Well, yes, <laughs> I actually think that it is. I think that we live in an era where um, there are so many questions of this nature that come up. And I do think it's important that we understand what probabilities mean. Um, I do also think that um, it's tricky because the timescales of science is different than the timescale of policy. 
but it allows us to phrase things in a way that we can make judgments. You know, a lot of the time we, we don't have an answer. You, you know, I personally am an indecisive person and someone can say, do you want to do this? And I'd say, I don't know. But if you say, um, well, what's the likelihood you want to do it? I have no trouble coming up with 70%, you know, which is of course a completely random number. But I, I think that there's a way it actually is more comfortable once, if, if you really absorb the notion of probabilities um, to say, and it, it just makes it all so much less mysterious. Like you said, you know, this absolute truth got, got changed. How did that happen? I think it's important to understand what probabilities mean. It means that sometimes the unlikely thing will occur. <laughs> and so by, by understanding that you can just make judgments, um, you can make judgments of, does it make sense to get a vaccine? This is the probability that something will go wrong. This is the probability that something goes wrong. If you don't take the vaccine, then you can make your judgment. And I think it's just incredibly important that people understand that, like um, Tim was emphasizing, some things are almost 100%, but there are other things that we really do have to make judgments and being able to have probabilities about them does help. And of course, in our age of loudspeakers from social media, it's very, very hard to get that done in a sensible way. So it's very easy for me to say this sitting on this panel nicely isolated. If I was a policymaker, I'm not sure how I would react to these, to these issues, but I do think better education is certainly gonna help. Yeah, I mean, uh, public rhetoric could be much better about this. Uh, I, I mean, it's one thing for people to actually know the numbers, the probabilities, and then it's something entirely different for them to kind of understand what they mean. Um, it's often pointed out in this country that people opposed to COVID vaccines say things like, oh, 99.7% of people who get COVID survive, uh, as if that's a really high number. But if you put that in context, I mean, I've seen a lot that I like, is if you look at the number of flights, domestic flights in the United States, which is in the hundreds of thousands, you'd say, well, if, if your chance of surviving a flight were 99.7%, that would mean we'd have hundreds of crashes a day and nobody'd get on a plane, right? If you'd say, you're not gonna get on a plane if, if, if every single day, hundreds of flights are going down. You know, people don't appreciate 99 point, you know, they don't see any difference between 99 and 99.9 .9 and 99.99999. I mean, they just kind of say, oh, that's almost hundred percent, who cares? We also and don't know I the think difference we can do much better with that by just concrete examples, right? It's, it's not fancy stuff, it's just, this is what this number would mean in a situation you can understand. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you make of this, Donald. Are human brains actually capable? I've, I've read a lot of silly articles evidently on this subject. Um, are human brains actually generally capable of holding these kinds of um, constant probabilities and fluctuations in their minds? Or is the truth of it that we all just, you know, we have habits and cognitive processes as shortcuts because we literally can't handle the mental load? Yes, this is it's an interesting area of cognitive science. The, the human ability with, with probability is actually poor in many cases, even trained mathematicians. You can you know, catch them off guard give them a question, a probability question, and often their knee-jerk reaction will get it wrong. And, you know, only if they sit down and really think deeply about the problem will they, will they get it right. And from an evolutionary point of view, um, what, what seems to be going on is that uh, we have to make decisions in real life quickly, and we, we are not always ac having access to all the data. 
And so we have where biases um, and assumptions that are sort of built into our, our, our brains. And most of the time, so for example, things that we hear more often, we tend to think um, are, are more frequent. It's just it's an availability heuristic. If, if it's available, if it's in the news a lot, then I, then I assume that that's happening a lot. Whereas there may be a bias in what's being reported in the news as opposed to what's actually happening. And so we use things like an availability heuristic to, to guess at what the probabilities are. And so, so you know, like Amos Tversky and, and, uh, and others are very, very famous for, for, for their work on this. And so given that scientists themselves are, are prone to these very you know, human um, problems with, with probabilities, it's understandable that the public uh, would, would have a, a difficult time. And so we should actually help the public along with avoiding some of the basic pitfalls um, about probabilities. Don't, don't people also um, make huge mistakes about what's right and wrong? I mean, it's not just a question of probability. I mean, if something's reported a lot in the media, it's not that they don't know the probability. They actually think it's 100% that way. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a question of probability. That's a question of way things that, you know, just our biases in terms of what we understand and how do we understand it as probabilistic or absolute? I think that's a separate question. Right. There are lots of cognitive biases. The book Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman is a really good example of, you know, of, of this kind of thing. There's a nice example, old example of Kahneman and Tversky's, which I think if people think about it, suppose there's some outcome you want, and right now you have an 80% chance of getting it, and someone offers you something that'll take that up to 81%, right? And you sort of say, well, how much would I pay for that? And now imagine there's a 99% chance that you'll get it. And someone says, well, I can make it 100%. So in each case, you're going up by a one percentage point. They'll pay a lot more, right? A whole lot more to go from 99 to 100 than from 80 to 81. Although from a decision theoretic point of view, those are sort of equally valuable. And so um, we're very bad about especially very small and very large probabilities. And, and we kind of mush the probabilities in the middle all together, even though they're quite different. Um, hard to know how to help people with that, except to show them a lot of the errors and hope they become sensitive to them. Right, and, and another area of, that's very difficult for experts as well as laymen alike is, is Bayesian analysis, where you have prior probabilities of things and then you get data and then you have to come up with your your, your your, what we call the posterior probability of, of something. And this is really a, a big issue when it comes to medical things, pandemics and so forth, prior probabilities and, and posterior probability. So, so with, with that, I mean, that, that's so technical and, and, and for many people, so counterintuitive that there, I think education is going to be really important up front for people to understand the whole Bayesian notion. But I think so, as scientists, we just have to assume that people are going to get it wrong. We really have to explain it every time what what our prior probabilities about things are, what the evidence is that we have right now, why our posterior probability is such and such. Plus now these are the, the payoffs, the risks for these different outcomes. So we have this probability for these different outcomes. These are the penalties or the, or the benefits for these different outcomes. And on balance, we now want to say this is the right policy. So, I mean, this is, this is really complicated stuff. Priors, evidence, posteriors, risk functions, and then you get your final, final answer, which is only provisional because now you're going to get new data and, and so you get a new posterior and so forth. So, I mean, I mean that the, the level I'm talking about could not be understood just as, as such in the general population. So there we actually have to walk people through and say, even experts are having trouble with this stuff. 
I mean, Donald, I have to say, I that completely appeals to me. All throughout this pandemic, I've constantly just thought personally, wouldn't it be great to hear someone's working? Like, I just, I just constantly don't understand why politicians can't explain something properly. Like, there seems to be a mistrust there between what the politicians think the public are capable of and what they're willing to do, I think, anyway. I have talked to people about this, and it is also because as soon as... I mean, the way our political system works these days, as soon as you open up that door, then the opposing side will not present the probabilities. They're just going to present that little, that little part that you were saying was a small probability as being a viable option. And if it's an option people want, then they're not, so everyone has to be on board. So it's not as simple as just saying that we sh that one person should, I mean, the opposing side has to do that too, and we can, there's no guarantee of that. So there has to be some balance in the terms yeah. of how we. That's that's incredibly right. valuable. I mean, it, it, it would be nice so now if everybody understood at least the base rate fallacies, but because people are taking COVID tests, right? And you say, oh, the test is 80% accurate or whatever, and then if they get a positive, they think, oh, I'm 80% likely, and it it depends on how prevalent the the viruses it must be it may be much much more likely it's a false positive but you can run that with some numbers in two minutes right you don't have to go into bayes theorem you can just say well if there are a million people and only half a percent have the virus you know this is how the numbers are going to come out hopefully you can make a little progress on that I think for, for what it's worth, the, the pandemic has definitely raised the profile of science and scientific thinking and scientific language, at least in the population, significantly more. So the question is, do we need to see science as a skeptical and challenging and skeptical and challenging of current views or to drive action and change? Do we rather need to see science as a discovery of a final truth? No scientist would want to say that... Uh... Science should be viewed as the discovery of a final truth. I, I think none of us believe that deep down in our heart. I mean, there are truths, as, as Tim said, you know, the, the moon is not made of cheese. There are things like that that we can, that we can determine pretty clearly. But, but the, the real interesting questions for most scientists are ones where we go, who knows what we're going to say 100 years from now? Uh, who knows what the theories will be? They'll probably be very different from from what we believe right now. Uh, you know, in, in the 1890s, physicists thought it was done. Newton was right and, and was all over. Uh, you know, 20 years later, we, we realized that, no, Newton wasn't the final word. Um, there was a lot of interesting stuff to do. And as a scientist, I just have to say that a century from now, they'll look back on us like we look back on Newton. I mean, they'll look at all of our ideas right now and, and go, why didn't they figure that out? Why didn't they understand that? Um, and, and so uh, as scientists, I think we have to, to paint that picture, but also point out that um, we don't have better ideas now. So if we're going to do public policy, we have to go with the best ideas that we have now and the risks that we understand now and, and go there. That doesn't mean that we won't learn. And hopefully we'll learn something and find out where we were wrong. But, but there are no better ideas now. And, and so I think, I think that's the thing to, to point out. I, th I think, though, that there is a, a problem, which is that, you know, we're having a debate, admittedly, as a cognitive scientist, a philosopher, and a physicist, but we don't have an economist here, for example. If we're talking about climate change, for example, there was, a, you know, climate change, people want to argue that we really knew things are going in a bad direction. And, you know, pretty much we do. But the way it was presented was because the, the, the fear was policy wouldn't be implemented unless it was made very definitive. And 
I think what we have to start doing is, is actually having conversations where we say this, I mean, look, to me, obviously we should do something because there's no going back because the probability is so high that things will be bad, et cetera. But there will be economists who say, okay, this is what it's going to cost us for something that we're not absolutely certain of. And so at some level, I mean, not all of these can be turned into calculable things, but at some level, we have to have those debates because that's what goes into policy. They don't just say, scientists, what did you say? It, it really is a question of other competing interests. And so there have to be more forums or more ways that this discussion can happen without people being afraid to say the truth because then they would just be taken over from a little bit of the wrong side or something of that nature like we were discussing earlier. Yeah, uh, but people also need to be a little more obviously sophisticated. I mean, take climate change, right? I mean, we've been warned about global warning, warming for half a century. And if you went back 30 years, you might say, oh, this is all based on these models and the models have only so many parameters. They might've left something out. And, and people were saying, oh, there's, you know, it, it's some 13 year solar cycle. It's all gonna go down again. We now have 30 more years of data. And we know who was, A, we know who was right. Namely, there is global warming and it's going really fast. And we also understand that the people who are arguing against it tended to have, like the fossil fuel industry, a really heavy personal stake in denying it, right? The way the, way the tobacco industry had in denying that, that smoking causes cancer. So let's just see that. I mean, they'll be fooled again, right? And, and look back at who had a good record, because you do get to check these things, right? The guy who That's said- That's for the record, uh, it, it, you know, know it's like in England. Yeah, you know, the guy who said degrees in, in March 2020, we're almost at, at herd immunity for COVID. He was really, really wrong, right? And you should look back and say, we shouldn't have paid attention to that guy and figure out, right? I mean, you have to hold people accountable when the data mm -hmm. comes in. Yeah, I mean, holding people accountable is challenging, though, isn't it, Tim? I mean, think, considering that we're, you know, sort of thinking about the role of science as, as we go forward and, and how it's meant to be, how? Who, who holds, who holds I mean, us accountable? Let me go back to something that came at the very beginning. We were lied into the Iraq war. And people at the time in the New York Times were saying these aluminum tubes that Colin Powell is waving around cannot be used for centrifuges for various technical reasons. We knew it, the people knew, who knew what they were doing knew at the time it was a lie. And we know now it was a lie. And we have to remember it was a lie. And we have to try to avoid being lied to again. You have to figure out who has an agenda and who's really just trying to figure things out. My, my, okay. Well, communication, communication, communication. That always makes me think of, of the media, right, Tim? Who's, who's yeah. the mouthpiece of the politicians? Who's the mouthpiece of the scientists? I mean, we are the most clicks. Uh, and that brings in this, the, the science of evolutionary psychology, which also is how people think, how people can be persuaded and so forth. So this is, again, a place where there's some danger. We can use evolutionary psychology to manipulate people's opinions. Uh, we, I, you know, the, the various um, advertising industries are doing that. They, they use the tools of evolutionary psychology to persuade people. Uh, science could gently use some of the tools to to help people along and understanding these things and, and being being persuisive instead of just being geeks we can actually we actually have the tools of science to be a bit more persuasive how do you than, compete than with are. joe rogan uh, yeah how do you compete with joe rogan <laughs> 
uh, that's tough. That's tough. But but you know, a, a Steve Pinker would know the evolutionary psychology well enough to to um, perhaps do that. So I feel like in in years to come they'll look back on this debate and say, and that was the moment when. Uh, Donald Hoffman encouraged the scientists to gently start a revolution of communication. Um, Thank you so much, all of you, for that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.